So would you describe yourself as someone who needs the affirmation of others? Uh, the Australian Federal Police Commissioner recently uh, said something about this, uh, Rhys uh, Kershaw. Uh, he made some comments recently regarding what I think was some internal research uh, done within the police force, uh, particularly around Generation Z. Now, Generation Z are those born between 1997 and uh, apparently to 2012, or something around that. Now, he said uh, recently some of these comments. You'll see them on the screen. He said, we learned that Gen Z, the younger generation, need three times a week of praise from their supervisors. Now, in comparison to previous generations, they, he said this. The next generation, millennials, only need three times a year. And my generation, he's a little bit older, Generation X only need once a year. Now, it would seem that we live in a generation that yearns for the affirmation of others. For others to tell us, you're doing a good job, mate. Now, when it comes to the scriptures, we learn that there is a spiritual aspect to this inner human need. Whether or not we overtly or consciously recognize this need. That is, the need to be deemed pleasing in God's sight. For the God of the universe to say to you and I, good and faithful servant, you are pleasing in my sight. And actually, as Christians, we are called to believe that what matters most is what God thinks of us. And the more we know and believe that, then the more secure we'll be, we will be as his people and able to live as he has called us to live. Now, this is especially important to consider because we live in a culture that uh, increasingly finds certain aspects of biblical Christianity displeasing. How are we to stand firm in our faith if the culture is turning away from its Christian roots? When the scripture calls us to hold on to truths that are actually displeasing to many in our culture and won't result in the affirmation of others, but rather at times maybe the direct opposite, rejection from others. It's into this discussion that we can consider Jesus' baptism this morning and the good news that it brings to this conversation. How is Jesus' baptism good news? How does it speak of good news for us? Well, and how it preaches to us concerning Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. And so these are the three things that I want to focus on this morning. Jesus' life, his death, and his resurrection uh, as we encounter it here in his baptism. And so let's first consider his life. And what we find from our passage is that Jesus lived uh, his, his, the good... Um, let me start again. <laughs> what we find is that the life that Jesus lived is good news for us because Jesus lived the perfect life. And by doing so, he achieved what you and I could not. Uh, last week, for those who are listening in and here yes, uh, last week, 
we met John the Baptist earlier in Matthew 3. Now, John was, as we heard, a very important figure whose job was to really prepare Israel for the coming of their Messiah, of Jesus. Uh, John was an odd-looking fellow who came with a fiery message to repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. A man who baptized Jews in the Jordan River, signifying uh, all the Jews needed to be cleansed from their sin. And in turn, to trust in the coming Messiah who would baptize them not with water, but with the Holy Spirit and fire. And it's on to this scene with John preaching and baptizing there on, amongst, uh, near the Jordan River. Uh, along now comes Jesus onto the scene. Having traveled that long distance from Galilee all the way to the Jordan River, Jesus ca- comes seeking to also be baptized by his cousin John. Now, John is gobsmacked by this. I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me, John says to Jesus. Now, to understand how Jesus' request to be baptized by John would kind of come across for John, perhaps imagine it like this. Uh, Imagine that a famous road cyclist uh, would come up to you. Let's say Cadell Evans. Uh, and you know the, Australian, the only Australian to ever win the Tour de France. Uh, and he comes up and says to you, Hey, uh, can you kind of teach me how to ride a bike? And uh, actually, can you teach me how to win a Tour de France? Now, that would be kind of ridiculous, wouldn't it be? Out of all people, he's the one that should be teaching us how to ride a bike and what pro cycling is all about. Now, in a similar way, it was so for John here. He knew Jesus was perfect and sinless. Out of all people, Jesus was not the one who needed to be the one who to repent of his sins, to be cleansed from the inside out, as signified by John's baptism. Why then did Jesus want to be baptized? Well, it was to identify with sinners, to show himself to be one with them, and to truly become their representative. Uh, Jesus replied to John in what might come across as a bit of a cryptic and obscure way, at least for us. He says, Let it be so for now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. And then John consented. He baptized Jesus. To fulfill all righteousness. What does that mean? Well, a part of its meaning is surely for Jesus to live that perfect life under the Old Testament law, to perfectly fulfill the Old Testament law, which would have included submitting to John the Baptist here as the last of the Old Testament prophets. But I think there's more going on here as well. It also picks up on the purpose behind all that. And the mission that Jesus had when he came to earth. To get a clearer sense of this, we once again need to dive into the Old Testament. Like we have so many times in Matthew's Gospel so far. I think for 21st century readers, uh, when we're first opening up Matthew's Gospel, particularly if we're unfamiliar with it, sometimes Matthew's Gospel can seem like 
walking into a conversation that uh, you're not quite sure what's going on. I wonder if you ever had that where maybe over morning tea or with friends, you walk up and you think, what are you guys talking about? And then they turn and say to you, well, you kind of had to be here for the first half of the conversation to understand what was going on. Well, for Matthew's gospel, it's important that we understand the Old Testament, understand Israel's history to gain a fuller meaning of what uh, Matthew is trying to teach us through his opening chapters of his gospel. Now, when we do dive in to the Old Testament, the Bible is clear that God is a just and righteous God. We think of Psalm 50 verse 6, it says there, The heavens declare his righteousness, for God himself is a judge. This is echoed in the New Testament, 2 Timothy chapter 4 verse 1. Paul there says that God as judge will judge the living and the dead. There he says to his young protege, Tim, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead. And so the Bible has a lot to say about righteousness and God being a righteous judge. And the Bible is also clear that human beings are sinful. We're not righteous. Ever since the fall in Genesis 3, all are sinful. All carry that sinful nature. And so if the Bible essentially kind of stopped there, it would have been well within God's right to simply wipe out the world and everyone in it. But we know this doesn't happen. God promises a way out through his covenant of grace. Something that was present even back in Genesis 3, but doesn't fully take shape there. It slowly unfolds throughout the Old Testament scriptures and into the New. One such place where it starts to unfold in more of a clear way is in God's covenant promises to Abraham. Stretched across Genesis chapter 13 to chapter 17, uh, there it details God's covenant promises to Abraham. In those chapters, chapters, God promises to give Abraham and his offspring a promised land to possess and live in, and that many kings and nations would come from Abraham, that he in God's sight would be blessed, and that ultimately all this would come to full fruition, fruition through one of Abraham's descendants. Did God promise all this to Abraham because he was a good person? No. The Genesis narrative makes it quite clear that Abraham was a pretty lousy sinner. Instead, Abraham had faith in God and the promise of a coming hero from his family line. Uh, in Genesis 15 verse 6 it says, And he, Abraham, believed the Lord and he, count, he counted it to him as righteousness as we open up our new testament scriptures jesus is that hero that came from abraham the sinless person who was going to achieve the impossible for god's people who was somehow going to bring god's righteousness to god's sinful people coming out of the baptismal waters a voice declared from heaven this is my beloved son 
with whom I am well pleased. Uh, In Scripture, Adam is called a son of God. You think of Luke chapter 3. And in the Old Testament, Israel as a whole is called the son of God as they're coming out of Egypt and being saved out of Egypt. Jesus here comes as the better Adam and the better Israel, spotless and pure in all his ways, God in human flesh. For the Christian, when you and I are displeased with ourself, our own failings, our own sin, that is a time to remember the perfection of Christ. And that in union with him through the Holy Spirit, that is what counts. It's his perfection, not our own, that we rely upon. Despite the reality that uh, we still sin and live sin-stained lives. For the Christian, in God's eyes, you're not seen like that. The language of the, old, uh, of the New Testament speaks of us being justified in God's sight, declared to be righteous when we have faith in Jesus. If you are a Christian, God the Father looks upon you with the same fondness and love that he has towards his Beloved Son, Jesus. He sees you and says, Ah, that is someone with whom I am well pleased. Weary soul, does your heart know that this morning? That you, if you're a Christian, uh, that God is fundamentally, fundamentally pleased with you. He is for you. And His steadfast love is always for you. So that's Christ's life, how that is good news for us. The second thing that I want to draw out from Jesus' baptism is concerning Christ's death and how that is good news for us too. How Jesus died the death that you and I deserve. Uh, When we think of water, uh, it's common to think of cleansing. Uh, What did you do last night after dinner? Well, you probably washed your dishes with water. Uh, If you're lazy, you use the dishwasher. Or even better, you waited long enough for someone else in your house to get around to do it instead. Now, we covered this aspect uh, and symbolism of baptism last week in John's baptism. By baptizing others, John was certainly signifying the need for people to be cleansed and start a a new life living for God. And actually, this, the symbolism of cleansing with water has deep roots in Israel's history. Well before John, uh, in the book of Leviticus, there it contains many types of washings uh, to wash away ritual impurities. Now, these washings were not quite the same as baptism, but the theological substance is there. But there's something perhaps we don't think of as much when we consider the meaning of baptismal water and Jesus' baptism here. And that is the theme of judgment. For example, the Psalms sometimes speak in these terms concerning water. King David says in Psalm 18 verse 16, 
He sent from on high, he took me, he drew me out of many waters. Likewise in Psalm 69, Save me, O God, for the waters have come up to my neck. I sink in deep myrrh, where there is no foothold. I have come into deep waters, and the flood sweeps over me. Two key examples of water as judgment uh, in the Old Testament is the worldwide flood in the days of Noah. And also, as Israel came out of Egypt and crossed the Red Sea on dry ground. In the days of Noah, only he and his family were saved. The rest of the world and all the inhabitants came uh, under the flood waters of God's judgment. In the time of the Exodus, Moses and the Israelites were rescued and miraculously crossed over the Red Sea on dry ground with God sending a strong wind to blow the waters away. But for those who know the story, what happens next? Pharaoh and his army come chasing after him, but the waters of the Red Sea come upon them, swallowing them up. Now, both of these examples, these acts of deliverance, the flood uh, in Noah's day and uh, the crossing of the Red Sea, these acts of deliverances are a double-sided coin, bringing deliverance for some and judgment to others. Likewise, Jesus was swallowed up by facing judgment. Uh, One commentator estimates that Jesus... Jesus traveled from Galilee uh, 70 miles on foot uh, to come and visit John on the Jordan River. He was willing to go the miles literally for this event. He wanted to go see John. But he didn't stop there. For on the cross, Jesus was well and truly willing to go the extra mile to save sinners. In referring to his own death as a type of baptism... Uh, In Luke chapter 12, verse 50, Jesus says, I have a baptism to be baptized with, and how great is my distress until it is accomplished. It was there on the cross that Jesus accomplished the impossible for us. On the cross, he identifies with you, with his people. Indeed, it was there that he swapped place with his people. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21 says, For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. All our failings that we've ever committed, all the ways that we've ever fallen short, excuse me, all the ways in which we displease God, our sinful ways we have displeased others. For the Christian, all of this has been covered by the blood of Jesus. Will you bathe with me in the knowledge of that truth this day? Christian, what is holding you back in your Christian walk? What personal shortcomings are weighing you down? Will you look to Jesus and the cross where he died? Will you place it at his feet, knowing that he has taken all 
your brokenness upon himself. A part of this of being willing to admit yourself to be broken. We live in a world that does not recognize human brokenness for what it is. And how in God's eyes all do and have fallen short of his perfect righteousness. The heart of the true Christian is willing to admit this about yourself, that we are sinners and to bring it to the foot of the cross. So, so far we've explored Jesus' life, how he was God's beloved son, his perfect son, who came to identify with his people in his baptism. And how Jesus also took the judgment waters upon himself on the cross and experienced God's wrath in our place, became sin in our place. Lastly, Jesus' Jesus' baptism preaches preaches to us the good news of Christ's resurrection and the good news of a new creation. Having gone down into the baptismal waters of God's judgment, Jesus rises out and the Spirit of God comes like a dove and rests upon him. What's going on here? Well, once again, our Old Testament helps us. In Genesis 1, chapter two, uh, chapter 1, verse 2, the Spirit of God hovers over the face of the unformed waters of the world in the original acts of creation. And in the times of Noah, just like how Noah sends out the dove to fly over the flooded world, waiting to see if they can find a new recreated post-flood world, here in Jesus' baptism, the beginning of a new creation and a new humanity is being revealed in the person of Jesus, on whom the Holy Spirit comes and rests upon. In this way, his baptism points to his resurrection. For his resurrection, not uh, not only did Jesus uh, rise victorious over death, sin and Satan, For death could not hold him down and the grave could not contain him. But actually his resurrection brings new resurrected life to God's people as well. First new spiritual life and also the promise of a new body too when Jesus returns. This new spiritual life is given to believers through the indwelt Holy Spirit who makes us born again anew. Spiritually, the promise of the gospel is that of a new heart that is pleasing to God and naturally desires now to live righteous lives. Now, it's hard to overemphasize just how much of a miracle this is. This is why Paul can say in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ... He is a new creation. The old has passed away, and behold, the new has come. This is phenomenal because it means that not only does Jesus' life mean that we're justified in God's sight, and not only by his death is our sin taken away and paid for, but by his resurrection, as applied to our hearts through the Holy Spirit, it means that we actually do begin to live righteous lives 
We start living for God rather than for our sinful passions. When I was sort of thinking about this, I pictured a, uh, if you imagine a criminal, someone in prison who has gone to prison, they've been sentenced to life in prison. And then one day they've been taken out of their prison cell and brought before the judge. And in the courtroom, the judge says to them, uh, you're free. I declare you righteous this day. The criminal might look around and think, what's going on here? I've... <laughs> I deserve to be in prison. And then next they come and take his uh, orange or striped prison wear off him and give him brand new clothes. And then he walks out of there as a free man. And not only that, but he walks out and then lives a completely different life. Never again does he go back to his old ways, but rather he then starts living the life he should have lived. Now, I just sort of pictured that as maybe a picture of what happens to the Christian when we're, the Holy Spirit comes and lives in us and makes us born again. How in God's eyes, if God is that judge, he not only declares our, uh, us righteous in God's sight, but he clothes us with Jesus, and then we go on living for him. Now, yes, our sinful flesh and evil desires will be something that every Christian will continue to wrestle with. In this life, we are not yet made perfect in every way. Uh, but it's an all-encompassing power of the Holy Spirit that we have now to now live for God in a way that we weren't able to before. Every Christian has a new master of our hearts, the new power of the Holy Spirit to put to death sin in our lives. And I want to ask you this morning, do you know this for yourself? Do you know this power from on high in your own life? I think for the Christian, half the struggle that you and I face is coming to terms with what has already happened to us of understanding more deeply of who we really are now in Christ, recognizing the new identity we have and the new clothes that we wear, being clothed with Christ. We live in a world, as I said earlier, that at times does not affirm Christian beliefs. And when the world fails to affirm the Christian as we seek to live according to God's ways, and when we get bogged down in these realities, we ought to bring to mind what God says about us, of who we are now in Christ. When the world tells us that we are displeasing because we choose to follow God's ways, we need to be reminded and to remind each other of what God says about us, and that it is his opinion that counts most. Furthermore, Christian, be reminded that you have a Savior who knows what it's like to suffer at the hands of others. Where before heading to the cross, he was beaten, mocked and tortured, all because he chose to follow his heavenly Father to the very end. Does your heart know the good news that Christ's baptism preaches to us for yourself? Does your heart this morning know God's voice that says, 
with you I am well pleased. Do you know the new spiritual life given by the Holy Spirit? To know this for yourself, if you want to become a believer, you must acknowledge that in your sin you are displeasing to God. That our sin is spiritually speaking like wearing dirty, smelly rags, wearing criminal clothing. And that we actually, if we remain in our sin without Jesus, we are deserving of nothing other than the wrath of God. And it's also acknowledging that this reality of sin and that we can't actually clean it up ourselves. We need help. Sin is like a stain of the soul that can't be removed with human intervention. The journey of becoming a Christian also means turning to Christ in faith. Having acknowledged God's displeasure with our sin, knowing that it is only by believing in Jesus and Him alone that we can become pleasing in God's sight whereby receiving the Holy Spirit and the spiritual life that he gives. Jesus says in John chapter 7, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. And so will you come to him? I want to lead us in prayer. Uh, Lord Jesus, we thank you uh, for your word this morning and how your baptism is a wonderful picture of what you've achieved for us in your life, death, and resurrection. And that, Father, you came to identify with your people that even though you were perfect and not needing to repent of your sins, you identified with sinners who did, did need to do this and do need to do this. Father, we thank you that uh, because of the good news of Jesus, you are not a God who is far off, out in the distance and, and not really interested in our lives or accessible. But Father, you are near us. And indeed, by your Spirit, you live in us and amongst us. And that we can know the, um, the, the precious knowledge that because of Jesus, in your sight, you are well pleased with us. Not because of our own goodness or, or somehow living up to your righteous standards by ourselves, But that Jesus was the only perfect one who did what we could not do. That he lived that perfect life here on earth. And that despite his perfection and him not being worthy of death, he chose to die on the cross for us. But the cross could not and death could not hold him down. But you rose, Jesus, gloriously on the third day, never to die again. And that through faith in you, we are born again and have access to that spiritual life and the promise of new bodies in the future as well. Father, I pray, Lord, that as we live our lives, help us to keep that front and center, knowing that in your sight we are pleased, uh, you are pleased with us. And Father, as we at times may encounter, as your people, uh, opposition to the truth of your word, Lord, I pray, Father, that we would be a people that don't seek to be man-pleasers, pleasing the world, 
but that we would be a people that seek to please you above everything, that we put you first. And Father, we pray that our lives would be righteous, uh, lived righteously. That Father, uh, your spirit would work in us to continue to put to death sin. And that Father, we may live lives that are indeed worthy of you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.